0: Welcome to What Have We Learned? Incidental learnings from interesting people. I'm Ben Punter. I'm very excited for this episode, so I won't keep you because I know you want to get straight into it. This is a very funny stand-up and host of Comedians Comedian Podcast, Stuart Goldsmith, who is direct inspiration for this very podcast stew is currently on tour and you can see him at the swindon arts center on the 26th of october the nottingham glee club on the 4th of november in birmingham on the 5th of november and then in bristol aldershot Corsham, newcastle and glasgow and then he's at the cambridge junction at the end of february for tickets and details head to comedianscomediancom tour There'll be a summary at the end of this episode of everything that we have learnt. And do let me know what you have learnt. I would love to hear from you. At Ben Punter on Twitter and What Have We learnt on Facebook. We start with a preamble talking about the humour of my name, Punter. And then we bounce all over the place talking about comedy, touring, fringe, the podcast and even hair. This is What Have We learnt with Stuart Goldsmith. I'm sorry
1: for I'm um, uh, being... Casual about your name, but I was very tickled. <laughs> it was, it
0: was. <laughs> Sorry, I use the term punter all the time. Well, that's weird because I never get. We're recording now, by the mm, way. Sure. Um, we, I never get. I've never. No, it's a name I've always grown up with. Mm. I've never understood the whole. It's a weird name to some people. Mm. So to me, it's like, no, that's just my name. Well, that's punters just, to me
1: is a. A punter is a really cheerfully dismissive way of referring to the audience member upon which the entire economy of my life rests. Yeah. So I love the idea of like any. Um, you know, there's like, is it that. um in Reservoir Dogs they go uh, do, you, do you kill any people and mm. he has a couple of cops any real people something like that so yeah, there's, yeah, like, yeah. there's a distinction between performers mm. and civilians or performers and punters yeah. and I, I, just, I just like the disrespect involved in
0: punters um, oh, I'll start off with um, I heard the Dead to Me uh, Greg Jenner's popular. oh yeah yeah the pirate one yeah. yeah and the thing about the pirate names of um, Captain uh, Cap- Captain Flat Jack Oh yeah, and yeah, mum beard. Yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm no, uh, I'm no expert or author, but I've never mm-hmm. heard of a better idea for a children's book.
1: Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> yeah, a sure stern thing.
0: mum of like. mate I am football.
1: full of great ideas for children's books. Mm. Children's books that um, then never get actioned or. Do you know what I mean? I think you know everyone has a novel inside them. Yeah. I think everyone's got like fifty great children's books in them,
0: but it's just <laughs> getting around to it. just <laughs> <laughs> the timing? Uh, Stuart Goldsmith, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for thank you for joining me. You've made far more effort than I have to get here. So thank you. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Uh, this so this interview I had more questions written for this than any other I've done so far. And I didn't know where to start. Yeah, big I was, nerd. Oh, yeah, I, know. I know you you got like you got like, the, the podcasting stuff, you got the fringe stuff, you've got the general stand-up stuff, and then you got mm-hmm. the um uh, d- d- all the sort of the writing and all the comedy stuff. Sure. I thought I don't know where to start. Mm. So I thought, ah, that's where I'll start. When you're interviewing someone and you've got a hundred questions to ask. Mm-hmm. What's your go-to... How do I start? Oh, very nice.
1: Very meta. I like it. Um, well, how do I start? I suppose I I, very, I get very nervous before the interviews that I do, even when I know the guests very well. I suppose one of my biggest fears is getting caught out somehow. I've got a, I've got a terrible, terrible imposter syndrome, and I feel like... Uh, Sort of quite incorrectly, my my podcast has established me as some sort of comedy expert, which I'm absolutely not. And then I feel like that, that, is, that identity is slightly put on me and then I need to live up to it somehow. So I worry that if I don't know chapter and verse of someone's entire oeuvre, then I'll get I mean, the, the example I always use is I, I worry that I'll say to... David Badil, have you ever thought about writing a film and he goes I've written a film and it won lots of awards <laughs> you know like that is a that has almost never happened I mean nothing that cl- clanging so I go in with a lot of nerves but almost always as soon as the actual interview begins uh, those go out the window because I just remember oh this is a human being yeah. and really I would say the best it's, it's probably some sort of a uh, 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 like Darren Brown-style technique, the interviews really go wherever they go. I think what I go in with is flexibility. I go in with a, a certain amount, not really a structure. Sometimes, often I will have a burning desire. That's the nature of my podcast. I'll go, how does this person do it? How does Tim Vine find continually new angles on this how does Milton Jones do one-liners but they exist almost like a far-side cartoon they create a mental picture rather than being reliant on puns how does Patton Oswalt get the amount of detail in his jokes and the honesty that he gets those things I genuinely passionately want to know so I sort of trust myself that I can start off talking about the price of eggs and get to to where I want and sometimes like I, I sometimes say to people but let's just get right into it. And I'll just give them something abrupt and challenging early yeah. doors. But anyway, the, the sort of the, the technique I was talking about is often what happens is I will go in with a, a, a burning question, but we'll, there's enough flexibility that the interview goes wherever it goes. And then, of course, as you know, as a podcaster, you can package it afterwards and go, mm. if you ended up talking about their <laughs> mum, you can go, this is the big mum interview. <laughs> do yeah. you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, but then, yeah. do you
0: ever bring back those sort of, the, the questions you are armed with? You kind of have that sort of in your in your armory can you kind i of go i can pull out this question because you've mentioned that thing because i have that for, question for l- later on a, a
1: little bit sometimes i have i've just got a terrible memory so sometimes i will do a not an elaborate but like a a sort of a quick mnemonic i'll look at i'll be looking at my guest over the way from me in a booth not a million miles away from this one and um and if they say something my thing is always about what are they glossing over? What are they kind of what are they sort of trying not to say? I, I think the um the the bits that we naturally sort of uh skid over or scuttle over mm. are often the things people don't want to talk about so yeah. i'll try and spot them and then i'll make a little kind of mnemonic of a picture like if it's something you mentioned keys i'll just try and imagine whilst sort of following whatever we're talking about i'll just draw a little key next to your head so i'll go when we get back to there <laughs> there's that and ideally oh, like 20 minutes later in the interview you'll say something else related to uh metal and i'll go Subject to metal. What was that keys thing you said earlier? Oh, do you know what I mean? Or yeah. something like that. That that's in an ideal world, and I only have to do that sort of ludicrous technique because my memory is so bad. There are sometimes, if there is um, so next week's episode is going to be with Sophie Hagen, mm-hmm. who's a, a brilliant comic, yep. and I went in there with a lot to talk to her about. She is an activist for uh, fat rights and uh, for anxiety, and she's a really passionate person. She wrote a book called Happy Fat. Um, she also. I, I have known her for a little while, and we will occasionally have little kind of um, dirty entrepreneurial chats where we go, well, "What would how would you best market this, that, and the other? So into that episode, I kind of went in thinking, that thing you did with gender-neutral toilets a few years ago, when it was in the cultural conversation, but not massively in it, how much of that was because you urgently wanted it, mm. and how much of it was you being a shrewd marketing person? So I sort of thought, I can't open with that. I'll get will establish stuff, I'll make her know that I respect her, not to butter her up, but I, I think she's a great comic, we'll talk about that. And then as we were sort of coming round to me kind of putting things in position where I could go, we understand you're shrewd, we understand you get marketing, and we know you're good and you like selling tickets... So this thing you did. And she just jumped in and went, oh, that was totally marketing. And I'm like, okay, okay, <laughs> let's go, let's go. But it
0: kind of opens them, up, it opens them up into like a safe space as well. I think so. Yeah. I think um, someone described this as, I couldn't have put
1: this better myself. Someone said, I lull people into a genuine sense of security. <laughs> Do
0: you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't think that really is. I don't
1: have, and this, this isn't open to every uh, interviewer or podcaster, but I'm beholden to no one. Mm. I, I am never pressured to interview anyone. If you're my guest, it's because I think you're brilliant. Mm. I admire you and um as a result i there's no side to it i might be thinking come on what about this but that's always couched in the reason you're here is because i think i can learn something from you
0: yeah and so with the um not being beholden to anyone do you ever feel that cuz that was one of the questions i had was do you ever feel that there's some pressure of always having this sort of schedule and routine of getting episodes out but if you're always... There is and there isn't. I uh, Because I, I am, to a certain
1: extent, beholden to my subscribers, mm. because now there are a certain number of people who pay me a small amount, like a micro-donation, a Patreon-style thing, but using a different system. Mm. Uh, Orsound, incidentally, it's called. You can go to orsound.com, like awesome, but with sound. And uh, I'm a big believer in what Mark does. It's his company, and I think he's great, so I'm very happy to mention it. Um, but, so I suppose, if I didn't release any content for two months and didn't say anything, I would imagine they'd all desert me and quite rightly mm. but I don't feel, I feel they only support me because they buy me and what I do so what I do is whatever I do do you
0: mm. know what I mean? Like yeah, when,
1: in, in my work as a stand-up, I, um, which is you know most of my life certainly most of my thinking time uh, I, I fervently believe that if you book me for X pounds to come and do X minutes at your show, you get whatever I say you get because what you're paying for is not that routine and that routine or that style. Even you might have certain expectations about it, but if you're booking me, you get me. Yeah. So, I would hope that you book me and your audience are interested because they're interested in whatever is interesting me at the time, and that's very much how I feel with the podcast.
0: And so, you mentioned about someone getting nervous before an episode sometimes. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Three hundred and ten of them I've done, and <laughs> I just genuinely can't, I can't put that down. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I was going to say, what do you think that is, or why is that also, with a a side note of that, are you ever starstruck? Not really starstruck. I suppose
1: it was a bit like, you know, the really big guys with whom I'm not personally acquainted, someone like Russell Brand or Mm. Jimmy Carr, it's a bit weird. It's Mm. not mega weird. I've I've gigged with Russell a couple of times back before he was massive, Um I, I only really know... I know Jimmy like, hardly socially. I've seen him at festivals and, you know, I've had a drink with him or something. I've seen a show with him. But we're not mates' mates. Mm. And you, he is so massively all over TV. Yeah, I've been I've been in a room with Tom Cruise. I didn't touch him. But I, I think <laughs> I made eye contact with him, which I believe is illegal. Yeah. And that was hyper-real. That was like, I feel like I'm on acid or something. This is like, that's actual Tom Cruise. So I... Very, very rarely, and I'm, i am should say—I'm a colossal Tom Cruise fan. So that was probably <laughs> what it was. Um, very rarely in in the in the the people that I talk to, I do get I get excited. Mm. I don't get starstruck. I suppose it's excited mixed with a little bit of fear that they will expect me to have researched their every waking moment to an unrealistic degree. Yeah. And I just have to remind myself: look, no, like if I do an interview with someone and they say. Uh, I really enjoy... I I listen to the so-and-so episode of your podcast. Just that one. I'm flattered. I think, oh, that's nice. They've made the effort. This isn't going to be generic, who are you and what do you do? Yeah. And as a result, um, I really open up to that person, more so than I would be with, you know, the next hundred, what do you do, kind of interviews that comics have to do while promoting things. So, um... You only I know that to to charm me you need to do a tiny bit of research. Yeah. But then I I suppose I am a bit of a people pleaser and I like making other people happy. Yeah. There are other people that one of my interviews started with me saying, "So what's your show about this year?" And they said, "Well, you've seen it, you tell me."
0: <laughs> and so that
1: did really put me on the spot. Fortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had things to say. Yeah. But if I if I had pretended to have seen it, I'd have really been stuck.
0: Yeah. And this, so does that confidence then as well come from the years of street before me?
1: Ah, uh, I. Th- think street performing was born of confidence and certainly increased my confidence i mean yeah i mean maybe it was i don't like to like it was such a magical thing for me the street was such an, a, a romantic in the sense of like it's like being a it's like doing a heist so it's like being a superhero and being a spy and doing a heist. And you learn secrets about humans, how, mm. how humans behave. You people watch for ages. You understand how to get strangers to do a thing. It's yeah. like being a, It's much more like all of those things rolled into one. It's like being a professional con artist, but a benevolent one. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you've probably, probably... You've that, got all these people to
0: stop for no, no reason at all.
1: Yeah, and when I... Funnily enough, I made it my... My principle was that it was for no reason at all. Mm. I never did anything high up, danger or dangerous, or particularly impressive, and that was important to me somehow. I often, I mean, I I think this is an honest thing. Like I'm, I, I can juggle whatever, like three burning torches on a nine foot unicycle, right? Um, have I ever done that? Yeah, I've certainly juggled clubs on a uni I, You yeah. know, i In my heyday, I would have been a couple of days practice off, really getting that nailing to performance standard, and I'm. I don't mean to show off. If I was showing off, that would be an absurdly weird thing to show off. <laughs> you know, so I'd be more impressed if I could do the Times cryptic crossword. But um, I could do that stuff, and I can be glib about it. There are people who do it brilliantly, and I'm sure I can't do it as well as someone who does it brilliantly, but it was a badge of honour to me mm. that my finale took place two inches off the ground involving a packet of crisps. You know, that, like, because that it, made, it made it explicit to my mind. I felt like I was continually saying to them, look what I've made you do with nothing. That's I said once, I, I, got the, um, I won a prize in the Street Performing World Championships. I think I came third. And part of it was because at the end of our shows, everyone would say, hey guys, once you've paid, go over and fill in your voting slips at that booth over there and vote for who you think is the best performer. Yeah. And you know, there was the best guys in the world there. Yeah. And there's me with my packet of crisps and my slack <laughs> rope, like a, a, literally a, length, a five metre length of rope. And I said to the audience, go and fill in that thing. Because there are people at this festival who are literally the best in the world, who've trained their whole lives with the most amazing things. Imagine the looks on their faces if I win with this. And enough of them thought, that would be good. you know what I mean? And, and so they went and did it. And um, uh, that I, I love that. So to come back to your question in a phenomenally uh, roundabout way, probably yes, I, I think that street performing gave me a certain amount of confidence. Not in every situation. I don't have a. Sometimes I I have wildly varying levels of self belief, but certainly it, my wife uh, had her phone pickpocketed, and uh, in on Charing Cross Road, and I instinctively grabbed the guy and said, "Ladies and gentlemen!" and thirty people turned around and stopped, and suddenly he had to give it back and run away. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I wish that happened all the time.
0: He <laughs> was very old as well. He was no physical threat whatsoever. But um, so
1: yes, a certain amount of confidence like that. Whether that translates to the confidence that you need in an interview i don't know i think in, uh, interviewing is less about confidence and more about empathy it's more about genuinely listening and it's more about going oh yeah that's yeah i'm like that and being able to say what the thing i find myself saying over and over again to my guests is um, god if i was in that situation i'd be really worried about that you know if i was if i had to turn over 50 new jokes a week for mock the week I suppose by the time I'd done the seventh or eighth show, I'd be thinking, "God, have I got anything left?" And it's those moments when you you manage to you sort of strike gold with you strike oil with some something that they have thought, and they go, "God, yeah, I know." And
0: suddenly you're in a different realm of yeah conversation because there is a there's a, a a point that was raised. I think it might have been on the three hundred episode with yourself and Sarah Millican, about preferring. Uh, work in progress is to polished final shows yeah. and i'm i 'm exactly the same now i like i almost it 's hard it 's hard to say i mean I saw Trevor Noah at the O2 arena. Mm-hmm. Trevor Noah' is a brilliant comedian he had a great did a great show sure. but the problem there was he was on after two warm up acts and I think the great thing about the fringe as well is you go there you pay to see the act and they 're on first that 's the act you get paid to a good see yeah. paid to see and then with the work in progress is you see that same act but you see the nuts and bolts you see them how they're putting it together and I'm fascinated by that's and, more interesting and i think given that i totally agree and i think given that stand up
1: when you see it like the vast amount of stand up out there it, on on recorded media mm. is packaged whether it's poorly packaged on youtube or brilliantly packaged on youtube or proper tv stuff it's packaged and it's i don't mean it's edited in the sense of they've made something funny that wasn't although that is arguably possible mm it's more that it, you are insulated from it and that's a million miles away i used to go and before any comics knew who i was i have no one but my point <laughs> is like before i was a comic and i was i was certain that the person performing didn't know who i was or anything i used to sit front and center for every single comedy show i wanted i wanted the sweat to be flicking on me i wanted to get right in there I loved it when it went wrong i'd see I'd see Simon Munnery three or four times a year sometimes to see how he coped with the latest technical nightmare in the middle of the latest phenomenally uh, uh, phenomenally inventive flight of fantasy um, flight of fantasy. so um i I think that when you there is so much perfectly recorded shiny glistening stand-up out there now that the Edinburgh Festival has become the Olympics of stand-up and everyone goes there having trained their whole lives and waited five years so they can be newcomer technically and all all that kind of mentality (laughs) I'm much more interested in seeing someone kind of reach you know that Jerry Seinfeld metaphor about how uh, a, for a joke to be perfect the cliffs need to be exactly the right distance apart oh, okay. if the cliffs are too close together you just step across there's mm-hmm. no danger if the cliffs are too far apart you fall, fall down yeah? mm-hmm. so for a joke to work you have to just make it Like, yeah. and, and that makes it, he means that in terms of the audience's understanding they need to just get the idea at the right time Yeah. and it's a good way to, to sort of uh, analyse jokes and sort of structurally critique them I think in the same way what I want to see of a performance is someone just make it and if they like that, when we see clowning when you see uh, uh, Zach and Vigo or Spencer Jones what you're wanting to see is someone go oh god this is a bit out of my I might control not make this. I might not make it yeah, yeah. now I'm not that type of a performer but I'm going into my management's uh, office on Thursday this week to go and have a big conversation about exactly what the next move is mm. given that this year in Edinburgh I had a projector screen I was doing a work in progress I had a projector screen on stage with 50 words on it which changed every day as I I continued writing and rewriting the show mm-hmm. and I would leap and leap and leap from one bit to another. It goes against some of my instinct because I want the show to be glistening and, and ready but honestly the amount of people who crossed the street to, to-, to tell me it was their favourite show they'd ever seen of mine and they have been coming for a few years mm-hmm. really made me go well I enjoyed it more mm-hmm. it was a more fun process <laughs> everyone said this is your best thing so... I am starting to think now, and given, let's remember the landscape, the riskiest thing you can do in comedy and art or whatever is play it safe. Mm -hmm. Why am I... Why have I... Risky. Why why would I shut down all this glorious profusion of sort of kind of wet, organic creativity in order to go, no, no, we've got to pop it all in a suit so that we can go on a shiny floor, Mm. when actually... Like, what are we here for? The other, my other big revelation is we all die. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> like, I know we knew, some of us knew this, but the amount in the last few years of stand-up comedians who have died, and what happens is on Facebook there's a big there's a period of mourning and celebration for five days or mm. longer or shorter, and then everyone just gets on with their lives. For some reason, that plus having children recently has made me sort of go. I mean, you re- you only get one go, mm. and I'm halfway, so. Why would I do anything that doesn't totally make me think, oh, this is good. If you jump out of a plane for a living, which in some ways is what I do, Mm -hmm. in in some ways. The cliff, then Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. Why would you... Yeah, I don't know. If you jump out of a plane for a living, why would you do it lower down? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the whole point. That's the (laughs) whole... Like, that feeling of being on stage and going, whoa, holy shit, here we go. That's what the whole job is, that's that's all the social life sacrifices I've made that in, is in order to get that, so why are we going to get that and go well obviously, I mean the answer is money and fame which is money um, and options which are money um, and, and you know and richness of life, it's like do you want to I'm rehearsing arguments now for this meeting not that they've come down anyway but I'm <laughs> kind of imagining arguments, like if the job is have an excellent creative time and inspire
0: people and have a wonderful time then Let's just keep doing this rather than trying to be the same as everyone else. So, so there's a couple of things there with the this the whole this is it. This is all you get. There's a great line from what's his name, Craig Ferguson, Mm -hmm. who says, "In the end, you end up as a dash. You have a start date and an end date, and then a dash in between. (laughs) Nice. And this is this is the dash. That's always going to be you. You'll be on a Wikipedia page, or on a tombstone, or in a book. Start date, end date, dash. This is the dash. What do you want to do? Yeah, that's basically that's the way to put that. Very nicely Um, put. Yeah. And then with the work-in-progress stuff, um, with, the, with the, when you talk about the projector screen in the work-in-progress, I've never seen that in a work-in-progress before. No. Because normally it's very much a... I've got a book of notes, or I've got something... I've got a notepad I'm going to skim through. It felt very polished, packaged as a work-in-progress show. Yes. Do you, and, you mean my one this year? Yes.
1: Yes. So the other thing is, I thank you... Um I can't help but polish things. <laughs> I just I that's from the street, you do a gag a thousand times, by yeah. the end of it, it's perfect, you know. Um so I agree with you. I also think the as well as the the projector screen, the fact that I'm making notes into my phone, which I genuinely listen back to the following morning, I have a relationship with future me, yep. which is something I've written jokes about in my last or my my last and current tour. The, the relationship between future stew and previous stew and how one can't rely on the other having made decisions yeah. but being able to talk to them and having this other thing of like there's the projector there's the audience here's me and here's me making notes for future me yeah. that kept the ball in the air constantly yeah. and it was really fun and exciting and
0: i loved it i've really enjoyed the the recorder elements because i think that's such a clever way of going here's an avenue for more comedy and more gags. If a joke doesn't work, I've got I've got this thing, this backup. Sure. I can say, they didn't like that joke.
1: Totally. And it's it In some ways, it mm. fulfils the same function as the Eddie Izzard scribbling something out on the back of his hand. and <laughs> i like, oh, never do yeah, that yeah. again. You know, it, in some ways it does that. Mm. In other ways, it is a genuine note to self, and it's mm. clearly, I think, born of the fact that I'm a bit scatty, and that's quite a nice... That's playing against the desire to polish, yeah. and actually celebrating the scattiness. And also it kind of uses my massive self-involvement as it kind of uh weaponizes that in a guerrilla way you know like in in comedy as in guerrilla war you take what's wrong and you turn it into a positive Mm. well one of the things that's wrong is i'm massively self-involved so if i talk to myself and then get lost in my reverie talking to myself in the future Mm -hmm. and then have to fess up and go and whatever I, I took to a couple of times, I took it too far, and I would just look at them and go. So my new T-shirts say "redefining self-indulgence." Do you know I mean or something <laughs> like that? You know, I, I'm giving myself a new problem that yeah. I have to to work with. So yeah, you know, I might. I, I do understand the counter arguments, which are that in order to get the eye of TV, you need to go look. I'm capable of turning in a finished product. Mm-hmm. But it just—I have to have a wider conversation about what are we aiming for next? What do I, as the person I am and the agent I am and all the rest of it, have to bring to the table in a variety of different places? Would I be happier being at uh, festivals and people going, "Wow, this is this is this is the groundswell of the stuff," you know, this is all the people are going to go and see it because it's special and people are buzzing and talking about it? Or is it better to go? I mean, I don't mean to sort of do down nicely packaged chopped up stand up that's ready for Netflix mm. you know but i've got to be realistic about what i think is available to me and and then whilst i'm being realistic one of my biggest problems is i never dream big enough you know i've got i've got just all Some people go to Edinburgh as new comics and go, right, how can I use this as a springboard to the next thing? I went to Edinburgh 26 years ago and thought, how can I come here every day, every week for the rest of my... every every day, week, whatever, every year for the rest of my life? I don't want to miss this because this is all the best stuff in one place going off. And so without meaning to, I can look back now and go, oh, what I did was I made myself part of the furniture at Edinburgh. I'm part of the, the... Ecology of the Edinburgh Festival mm. because now every time I'm there I'm running around seeing stuff recording podcasts loads of newer actors going can you come and see my show you know I'm like I have some of the qu- positive qualities of being a comic I have some of the positive qualities of being a reviewer but none of the negative ones yeah. I can genuinely help people I get lovely messages from people going wow you sent loads of people to my show I love it what's bigger than that I don't know if there's an equivalent I don't know if mm. you can run
0: round Hollywood being useful to people <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, just for the last month hasn't got that kind of same feel either it hasn't got that kind of same it hasn't got that kind of run around element to it well I mean have you been no but I'd like it, to I've been three times and it
1: sort of does it does when I'm there because I love legging it around the place going have you seen that have you met them oh you, t- you two should meet to each other you should talk to each other I'm not doing it in a high level agent way where I'm connecting someone with their next Netflix opportunity mm. but I love being there and the, the times I've done live uh, versions of my podcast there and I in the, the year I interviewed Patton Oswalt in the audience with Jimmy Carr, Sarah Millican, Russell Howard, do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was just sat there and, and there was a lovely moment, you can hear it on the recording, it's, I can't remember how many episodes ago, Patton goes, um, he starts talking to the, I, 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 said, I mentioned to him beforehand, there's a bunch of British comics in, I meant arena filling British comics, yeah. he hasn't necessarily heard of them. So he was like, and and new comics in here. You'll know this And in a very lovely, gentle kind of treating them as if they're open bikers. It was just, a, it was just a really wonderful kind of turn of phrase, given
0: the uh, the, the the component of the audience. Mm. And so, it's a question I have for the end normally, but I'm going to put it in now because you've mentioned it. Why is Edinburgh so special?
1: It's so special to me because I've spent over two years of my life there over the last twenty six years. I have. Fallen in love there. I've fallen out of love there. I've uh, had ludicrous adventures. I've, you know, not throwing TVs out of windows, but that kind of thing, do you know what I mean? Like, it's been rock and roll to me. I helped stop a riot there once. Um, (laughs) And so very much like putting a TV back in through the window. Um, But... uh, uh, so the, it has that kind of life element to it, where in some ways it's like my mum's garage that I've been allowed to put a purple light bulb and a sofa in. You know, oh, yeah. it, it's that. It feels like it feels mine. On the other hand, it is just the meeting point for all of the, not all of the people, but a substantial number of people who've had a great idea or a terrible idea and are just believing in themselves and trying it. It's mm-hmm. the workbench for everything. Yeah. And. I've seen some of the most extraordinary things there and there's always the person. That, uh, there's always the possibility that the next thing you go and see is going to be this year's thing. thing that makes me feel like a 16-year-old again. Mm-hmm. It's going to be this year's John Robertson's The Dark Room mm-hmm. or this year's Fuerza Bruta or this year's... God, Circus of... No, it wasn't Circus of Horrors. What was it? The Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. I saw that when I was about <laughs> 17. I got my T-shirt signed by Jim and the mm-hmm. Enigma afterwards. You know, there, there are just... Some of the most, some of the moments in my life, some of the best moments in my dash, some of the moments where I felt plucked like a string and gone. Oh God, this is what being alive's
0: about. Yeah. Happened at the Edinburgh Festival. The, the closest thing I can compare to that was I saw. Do you know Rob Kemp? Yes. I saw his show Elvis Dead two two years ago, and it was.
1: I was silent there, and I always feel bad if I don't say something good. Like, oh, great! I, I know and like Rob very much, but I
0: have not seen his show. I haven't seen any of his work just by dint of clashing oh I that's think. fine so I, so I had tickets for it was like a compilation show for like Best of the Fringe midnight showing somewhere and then I, heard, I saw online this online buzz for you've got to go see oh, Elvis Dead you've got to see Elvis Dead mm. and I was like well I paid five pounds for that one and it starts you know in midnight right? but, and I went to, to see the show and it was like we've got no tickets the only tickets we've got is tomorrow at midnight I went, oh but I've got tickets for the, the highlight show like, forget the highlight show we're going to Elvis Dead So I saw I went and saw it, and it's probably one of the best shows. That energy, that kind of... A, obviously there's an element of, I'm not supposed to be in this room right now, I'm supposed to be somewhere else. But also, it was so different. It was like, how has no one done this before? How is this... Why does this work? Why does this work so well? And it was a tiny room, and the atmosphere in that room, I was sat in front of... I had Robin Ince sitting right in front of me as well. Mm -hmm. There was an element of like, why are all the comedians here? All the comedians here are here. You know... There must be something going on because... Well,
1: that's, that's what buzz is. This mm. is a
0: pet theory of mine. When people go, oh, how can I generate
1: buzz? You know, all this buzz about my show. Buzz is when comics like your show and mm. tell people. And it's the only thing you can trust because comics don't have a stake, a yeah. financial stake in your success. You can't get buzz from a PR. You can't yeah. get buzz from your agent. Of course they're going to tell everyone you're brilliant. Mm. But if Nish comes to see you or, uh, so, you know, whoever, uh, a comic who is well-known and loved among comics, and they go, dude... You've gotta see this. Yeah. Then everyone's like, Whoa, and then a bunch a load of comics go and see it, and then all of those comics go, Hey, following, you've got to go and see this and that's where it comes from and it's it's just sort of impossible to create
0: artificially. My version of that for this year was Beck Hill. Yeah, right. Yeah, great. It was just like so I went with three friends, and I went on my own first time. And I said, "You gotta go see it." And I saw it in preview, and I really enjoyed it. And as mm. I understand it, it shifted several gears up after yeah. that. Yeah, it, it it starts like a normal. It almost starts like it there's a false start to it, mm-hmm. and it's like, is this, is it going wrong, or is this supposed to be happening? And it's like, no, no. And then you realize by the end, you're like. All of this has been organised, yeah, yeah, and it's like, and it's layers within layers within layers. It's it's someone talking to themselves mm-hmm. in th- not just one different way, three different ways. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, this is just a little bit brilliant now, yeah, yeah. And I told my friend, and they saw it, and there were com- they had complete different responses. One said. It wasn't really for me, sure, because they don't really understand sci-fi. They don't really understand sort of that kind of humor. Maybe maybe they want to see something different. Yeah, if you if you're not into the genre of time loop, it could mm, yeah. be a hard watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Friends of <laughs> I loved it. That was, I think it's one of my best shows, of The Fringe, mm-hmm. for this year certainly. So the show I saw this year that you did, there was a moment in it which I'm now I'm willing to cut this out what if this is. doesn't obviously there's a without giving anything away, there is you plant and you plant a story about an audience calling out then the audience calls out something Yeah, yeah. and then you worked out in the show I saw you worked out that you could actually call back to the yes. audience Yes, that's one I saw yes. and it was just this feeling in the room of like by Jove he's got it
1: yes it was but what he had by Jove got was that idea which mm. seeing me have that idea and going I could make a connection there <laughs> is very satisfying because what is comedy if it isn't just the comic going thing A thing B oh god I could make a connection there yeah. at the same time as everyone else is thinking it you know um I tried it, but um, what happened... We can talk about the bit. Uh, uh, so I tell a story. Sometimes in the show, I would be benevolently heckled. And I would tell... us because I'd, and I'd, There's a track I would get on sometimes where I'd go, Oh, that's nice. I'm very lucky. I get benevolent heckles. And, I, and that kind of began to be a bit. And I would tell a story about being at Glastonbury Festival, losing my place in the middle of a set and someone shouting, Go on, Stu. In previous shows, and I maybe have done that... 20 times over 40 iterations of the show. Well, maybe not as many as 20. Once I mention that, later in the show, if there is any kind of fuck-up, some wag will think to go, go on, Stu, and get a huge laugh. A huge laugh. And I've been trying... I have tried a few variations, because it's happened a few times, but 15 odd times. I've tried variations of how can I somehow get a topper off their laugh, because I'm a weedly little guy, and it's hard to let the audience have that laugh but it's always better to let the audience have that laugh. One time, one time I think someone said go on Stew," and I gave them the laugh and then ten minutes later someone else said something else that was quite a good heckle and that got a laugh and then I went go on audience and it pinged back. Was it that? That Is that the one you saw? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, great. That was lovely. I mean... It's one of those things that I can't stage manage Mm. and what I can do is deliver the components and then get on with the show and if there's a happy accident, that's lovely. And again, I mentioned Darren Brown again. I believe one of his most uh, uh, personal effects works on the basis that it's one of those things where there is a thing and you basically make a wild guess and if no one if it doesn't work no one knows that you've made a wild guess mm. but if it does then everyone they just can't believe it and <laughs> something magic's happened i think i think, um, I think uh, Simon Munnery had something similar i saw him years and years ago and at one point he says does anyone do you ever and he said do you ever do you ever just feel completely alone and he i'd spoke to him about it and every so often one person would go yeah And then he'd go, just you. Like, Do you know what I mean? But it's not the sort of thing you can stage manage. All you can do is set up the conditions and then hope the magic happens in one way. And if it doesn't, the point of the whole eternal work in progress, and we are at a stage now where what I'm planning to do, one of my plans is that I do work in progress for the rest of my life. I just never call it that. Mm. And it's when you come and see me, that's what you get, is me working out stuff. Well, Ross Noble can do his version of that, and Eddie I can do his version of that. So, you know, there's, there's no rules. Um so I would it may be that by rather than trying to trim it down as is my deep street performer nature trim it down into a joke that'll save me that'll be perfect every time no trust that I am funny and funniness is funny and I'm in it and of it and maybe something even more wonderful will happen a hundred further tries down the line Uh, so this year was at Monkey Barrel yeah, Is that a new venue? That, is that Monkey Barrel itself has existed for two years. Last year they added a second smaller room to the first one. Mm-hmm. This year they added three additional rooms over the road to the first two. Yep. So the organisation's been around for a couple of years. Uh, now it's got five venues and I hope it keeps getting more venues. It's yep. brilliant.
0: Um, is there ever like a venue in Edinburgh that you've gone, I'd love to play there? Assembly Hall. Yeah. What's that, 1300? <laughs> yeah. Is that
1: Assembly Hall or the McEwen Hall? I think it's probably bigger, but the, the McEwen Hall's sort of cavernous in a way that I think it'd be less fun to play. I think Assembly Hall, like the one on the mound, yeah. that's got to be... I mean, there's loads. I've done gigs there. I've done 10 minutes here and there in lineup up shows, um, but that one would be all right. But there we go, not dreaming big enough. I didn't say the EICC, did I? And <laughs> um, You know, that feels like the biggest reasonably fringe venue. Also, I'd love to, if I really was had the profile if i 10 years from now was massive i'd love to do something outdoors i remember seeing uh eddie Izzard and my friends vince henderson and john feely do a thrown together street show they're all mates from covent garden back in the day this is only maybe 13 years ago or so maybe 15 years ago um so eddie was massive um and there was just this in the wireworks, which hasn't been the wireworks for a long time it's by the fringe box office it's now a big metal shed but there was a tiny you would go through one of the little ginnels off the high street yep. and there would be a little space now if you couldn't normally do a street show there because you couldn't get a crowd and bring them through yeah. but all you needed to do was just stand outside and go eddie is i was doing a street show and it was like what, what? and <laughs> and they did a brilliant improvised three-hander show that they'd come up with in the pub last night and just kind of played it and it was magic, and I remember thinking that is such a lovely thing for Eddie to do—to still be so connected, despite his enormous global fame, mm. to be connected enough to the world of street shows that he wanted to just come out and play on the street. And I'd I'd love to do that if I ever, if it like I I can do that now, and uh, often don't get round to it because I'm I've got other pressing things on. But if I had unlimited resources and fame, it would be lovely to swank in and go, hey guys, mm. let's. Uh, Hey, hey, other street before I mean, he did it with a tremendous amount of class and his old friends. I think I'd do it like an absolute wanker.
0: I found out about a new venue today, which I'd never heard of. It's the, the airport terminal venue. Sounds local. It's, like it's, in the, it's near the car park of, the, of Edinburgh Airport.
1: Okay. I'm like, pro- I imagine it's easily accessible by tram. That yeah. tram journey is fantastic. I know the city doesn't like the tram, but I think it's brilliant. I think it's good as well. I don't know why people shit on it so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could, do, you could include tram ticket as part of the price. Mm. or something like that yeah that's quite a fun thing do comedy on tram plus if you were um, if it was like if your show was sort of themed about the
0: future people mm. could arrive by tram you could have your own stop yeah mm. it'd be quite good so you're on tour next from the time of the recording next week yes how do you feel about that? are you excited yeah definitely
1: definitely I mean it's a weird one because the first leg we split the tour into two legs for the first time and the first leg of the tour was places close to home and the second leg of the tour which I'm embarking upon now is places like Aberdeen Yeah, <laughs> literally Aberdeen <laughs> Um, there are it's a real mix of places I'm excited to go to for the first time. Uh, Tynmouth, uh, really, I love the room at Tynmouth Pavilions. Aberdeen Comedy Festival will be loads of fun. Um, all the stands, uh, some stands and some glees are in there. Those are fun. And similarly, there are places that are kind of like, like the Westie in Aldershot or the Junction in Cambridge or Swindon Arts Centre where I'm just like, I always have a good time here. So, yeah, absolutely can't wait. And what will happen in the show is I will do... The tour show, which is last year's Edinburgh show, it's called End Of, that's the hour. Then there's an interval, uh, before which I explain there's going to be new stuff, so come back after the interval. And then I'll do 40 to 60 minutes of new stuff, including some, all or none of Primer. So the the fun bit for me will be not just resting on my laurels of the stuff that you saw, but kind of going, okay, those three bits are good enough now that I shouldn't really let myself do them unless I get in a jam. Mm. So I want to be continually turning stuff over so it takes the, although the first half of the show, that will be fun for me because I'll be doing stuff that's well honed and that I've done 60 times Polished. and uh, and then the second half will be super unpolished and had all the varnish stripped off it and uh, so it's, I, I will I, I realised the other day, I'm never bored, <laughs> I think I used <laughs> to be
0: bored sometimes mm. as a teenager and I'm just never bored I'm often scared but I'm never bored because obviously with the if you're doing two separate hours you'll have that first hour to kind of sort of pull apart the audience it's kind of like ah they're this kind of crowd to maybe figure out what you want to do in the second hour potentially but i don't know how much stock i personally hold in that because i think that is
1: well that suggests that it's all a lot more kind of nuanced and deliberate than it actually is it's much more me kind of going I'm going to do this now and I'm going to make you come along with it. Now, I might in the first half go, oh God, they're, they're not really up for it. They're a bit either older or they're a bit, um, I don't mean older as a bad thing in itself, but maybe they're we've got less in common, so I might have to attack things in a different direction, or maybe they're a bit starchy or what have you. Um, but even then, it's not like I can, I wouldn't select what I do in the second half based on What I think they'd like, I select what I do in the
0: second half based on what I'm excited about. Right. And what. And damn the fools who (laughs) paid money to see me. (laughs) And uh, what. uh, Excluding the obvious of missing family, what's the hardest part of touring? Um,
1: Thank you for excluding the obvious. It's definitely missing the family. Um, I suppose. It is isolating, uh, I am pretty small beer as a touring act, I'm first couple of rungs, so mm. I can't afford a tour manager or a, <laughs> forgive me, I choose not to employ a tour manager or support act, mm. um, so it can be isolating, but in all honesty, I don't, like not having someone who, like the, it would be nice to have someone set the room up beforehand so that I could look out the window and eat an apple, um, but it would be really nice when it's gone well, to come backstage and high five someone. Mm. That would be really nice. Um, and then travel back with them because there's the energy, the adrenaline sluices out of your system forty minutes later, mm. by which time most of the time I'll be on the road with two or three hours ahead of me still. And I the isolation is one thing. I'm so I'm so busy all the time that like, I just listen to podcasts, not not even comedy podcasts anymore. I listen to podcasts about things I don't know about, mm-hmm. like you know, notional things like property and investing, and what do stocks and shares actually mean? And you know, I always thought I'd try and learn a language, but I've never known anyone actually get round to that. What I like to do is sort of learn things that I always considered a closed
0: book. Mm-hmm. Probably before too long, I'll start taking an interest in sport. <laughs> <laughs> so I did an interview earlier, and I have that person ask a question to oh, you, sure. to you. Yep. Um, and who are they? Do they know me? They did know you. Um, Jennifer Tyler, they did a show at the Interim Fringe called Ready or Not. This is a question from Jennifer Tyler. Here's a question to you.
1: Hi, Stuart. I love your podcast. Thanks so much for doing it, it's grand. Um, And all your work. My question for you is What are those magic moment memories that you have of of shows that you've seen or that you've done yourself? Those magic moments that you look back on and just make you so excited for comedy and for what you do and um, to keep ploughing on forward with spreading the love of comedy? What are, hello Jennifer, thanks, what a lovely question. What are those magic moments that I've kind of seen or done? myself that make me want to keep going. Well, it's all about those, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, I suppose, uh, frustratingly, we've just covered this in the interview, but that bit when people would shout, go on, Stu, like that's a lovely thing. Giving people the chance to be brilliant themselves. That's very satisfying. I'd like to do more of that, but it is against my nature as someone who wants to be the star. It's just full of it. I see, I see magic moments Everywhere. I'm like, the kid from the sixth sense, but for really good bits. <laughs> I really do, and I think one of my um, predilections is that I... Do I mean that? Uh, there's one of my things that I do all the time is I archetypalise things. I, I treat the world as if it's this huge fairy story, and of course it's meaningful that the, the man with the beard was in the yellow booth, you know? <laughs> stuff like that. I just sort of... I just see that everywhere. It's just the way I see the world. So I suppose in comedy... Yeah, God, just constantly, like, little mistakes, little moments, little real... I was seeing, um, Zach Zucker uh, did a show called Jack Tucker Comedy Stand-Up Hour, where he's a clown and he does the, the character of a stand-up comic. So it's a clown playing at being a stand-up comic. And, um, he, his uh, co-creator, Johnny Woolley, would, um, uh, play live sound effects in to screw him up all the time. And there'd be, like, you know, nine people would walk out and they'd they'd do a lighting cue and a machine gun noise and everything and you'd be going if they set up did they get nine students to come and watch every night and then walk out and they didn't but so things like that I suppose I mean they'd all be I don't know it's sort of hard to describe like they'd all be moments that either you've seen them or you haven't I mean the one I always think of is the dark room when John Robertson at the beginning of the dark room came out and said and I stumbled into this thing halfway through the run and it was rammed daytime underground and he was playing the the audience walk-in music was I'm Still Alive from Portal and I went hello I know that why do I oh <gasps> that's from Portal It's the best computer game I think and um he came out in this kind of head rig with these torches on his face and said how many of you have been to see the dark room at this festival before and everyone went nuts and I went <laughs> what is going on what have I missed so that was very special um, and then, bring it back to street performing, uh, I saw uh, uh, Anthony Livingspace, who is one of the best street performers in the world. I wrote my dissertation about him when I was in college, and now he's my friend. And he did a wonderful thing where he was working in uh, Tron, Hunter Square, near the Tron pub, yep. Yep. and um, before they could throw him out, he does sort of following silent clowning stuff with sound effects. Really improvisational, really vivid and fun. He sort of walked in... And he just kind of sauntered in and then ran out with one of their ketchup bottles and just started flicking ketchup everywhere. And it was just the maddest... Like, it isn't technically a joke. It was just this ludicrous, anarchic act of daring. And... um I was watching it on the final day of Edinburgh with a load of my mates who are, I, or, are or used to be street performers and it was just, you know, it's things like that. You just go, this is us and it's of us and it's for us and it's for everyone and it's special
0: and constantly. I'm pleased to say that my life is absolutely filled with things like that. For me, my Edinburgh magic moment, if that's, if that's the category, is I went to the, the, the caves, just the tonic, and I was I was in the toilet and there was... Three cubicles, two urinals and two sinks. And every single one of them was occupied by someone wearing a cape. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what's going on. I didn't know there was a dress nice. code. What's going on here? Glitch in the
1: Matrix. Love
0: it. A new section I'm not particularly going to continuing adding. I had so many questions <laughs> added into this whole interview that I had a section of weak rejected questions. a so quick fire, weak rejected questions. I love it. I don't like these questions. Okay. I wrote these. I don't like them. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Consider them disavowed. Um, uh, what was going on with the Everyone's Comedian pilot?
1: Uh, perfectly valid question. Nothing is happening with it. Uh, no one was interested in it, and no TV TV companies were interested in it, but no one took it up, and the, those doors are all now closed. I believe it belongs to me, and I'm trying to get hold of the footage that we recorded for the actual pilot pilot to show at a live event sometime, but no time soon. Um, <laughs> I
0: hate this question. How much of your hair is a part of your own brand?
1: Oh, it's a good question. Um, I have got big hair, A, because I like it and I like that I look unusual. Like, I don't look like I work in a... Oh, these days everyone looks like they work anyway. But um, I have a very generic face and I, after... Uh, I've done jokes about this and people laugh so I know it's true um, I, one of the gags is I look like your brother's friend and that normally I just yeah okay thanks <laughs> That's very good. so so I I've, partly the hair was a response to I just noticed when my, head, my hair got big and wild one time mm. then someone after a gig went hey I really enjoyed that gig rather than did you see the comedian <laughs> which yeah, has yeah. happened in the past um, so in some ways yes
0: have you ever had a great guest or great episode that you felt personally disappointed by as an interviewer? Mm, probably. probably. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but probably. And I've, as- I've got very high standards of myself, and what normally happens with the pod is I go, what about this one, is this alright? And mm. everyone goes, "God,
1: best one ever. And I go, <laughs> oh,
0: sure. <laughs> and then the opposite, the, the happiest you've ever been with an episode.
1: Oh man, Pete Holmes, the Pete Holmes one, it's mm-hmm. about five or six episodes ago, live at Montreal, it was my third time there, I felt very comfortable and happy, I was nervous as ever, I'm a huge fan of Pete's, and I think my first three questions, questions—he before each of his first three answers, he goes... God that's a great question Like yeah. he really gets on board with me And what I'm trying to do And it gave me so much confidence Ten minutes later I had to remind myself I was in the middle of an interview Because I, I might as well have been in a warm bath Being massaged by a brilliant comic
0: <laughs> And also it was going to be do you, uh, do you listen to any other podcasts But we have already covered that I years. do
1: The ones I listen to are Boards, Gore and Swords uh, Which started off as a, a Game of Thrones podcast And now recommends other TV shows But Ivan Hernandez and Red Scott Have a brilliant, brilliant relationship And they are my constant friends on the road uh i also listen to uh the npr politics podcast and reply all and it could happen here which is a brilliant documentary series about the the possibility of there being a civil war in america under the current uh, political conditions mm-hmm. and something else brilliant recently what did i start Listening to, oh, the Mike Winnett podcast, which is fascinating. And if you're listening to this and you are a power-hungry, ambition-crazed (laughs) stand-up comedian, you should download Mike Winnett's episode with the most hated salesman in the world. Because it basically teaches you, if you want to,
0: how to get your foot in the door anywhere. And it's dirty. And finally, who inspired you to start the podcast? Because obviously the podcast has inspired many other people and many other copycats. Who has inspired you to actually start it?
1: I was inspired to start it predominantly by a TV programme called Show Me The Funny, which constantly interviewed me and a bunch of other comedians not about comedy, and it was largely born of frustration that we had ten really talented people in a room, and they kept going so, you're a bit worried about the competition from Dan this time, (laughs) and if I'd I'd watched loads of RuPaul's Drag Race at that time I'd have gone, oh I get what this game is sure, yeah, I'm really worried about him, you know what I mean as it was, I was like, you idiots, you told us this was going to be MasterChef for comedy why don't you ask us, what was (laughs) it in our heart when we wrote a joke, not once. So I wanted, so that inspired me to do the opposite of that. Stuart Goldsmith,
0: thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Stu for this episode and thank you very much to the Engine Shed in Bristol for the recording space. Stu is currently on tour at the moment and you can see him at the Swindon Arts Centre on the 26th of October and then in Nottingham, Birmingham, Bristol, Aldershot, Corsham, Newcastle and Glasgow and then at the Cambridge Junction at the end of February. Comedianscomedian.com slash tour for those details there. So, what have we learnt? We've learned that everyone has a novel inside them plus an extra 50 children's books. Visualise your questions and let your interviews go where they need to go. Lull your guests into a genuine sense of security. Interviewing is less about confidence and more about empathy and listening. Edinburgh is now the Olympics of stand-up and a meeting place for those who have a great idea. It's impossible to create artificial buzz. Take what's wrong and turning into a positive. The riskiest thing you can do is play it safe we all end up as a date, a dash and a date, and this is the dash, so go be a professional cliff jumper and never look Tom Cruise in the eye.